Okay, guys. Hello. We're two nice Jewish boys. I'm Noah Menninger. This is Eitan Weinstein. I'm Eitan Weinstein. Mm-hmm. We're the hosts of the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast. And we're going to be your hosts for this evening. Before we jump in, we want to thank our hosts, Soho House, for this amazing event. Yes. Thank you, Soho. Also, we'd like to thank Jay and the Salon TLV for organizing this event. Check out their amazing initiatives like Adopt a Safta. Who doesn't want to adopt a Safta? Um, Adopt a Safta and subscribe to the Tel Aviv International's email list if you haven't yet. This evening will also be recorded and uploaded as a special live episode on the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast. And if you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? And finally, the book... 2048, The Rejuvenated State by Dr. Michael Oren, available on Amazon. Trust me, you want to buy this book. It's also available here at the end of the event. You can come and just get a physical copy, which is basically, honestly, it's the best. Uh, and finally, before uh, we jump into it, at the end, we'll have Q&A. So you want to stick out for that. And yeah, let's get started. Eitan. Thank you. So we're sitting here, uh, you know, in the beautiful, magnificent ancient city of Jaffa, and we're all sipping on our cocktails and our wine glasses, and it's really easy to forget the, the unrest that's unraveling outside, that's still unraveling across the country, uh, a, quote, national day of disruption. Main highways were blocked, huge protests all around the country, demonstrations in front of politicians' homes, and more, all of this in opposition to the proposed judicial reforms, none of you are living under a rock, um, that have been proposed by Netanyahu's uh, right-wing government. I think all of this is just a symptom of a nation divided. We have the right versus the left, the Haredim versus the secular, the Arabs versus the Jews, the Abu Hassan lovers and the anti-Abu Hassans were in Jaffa. To add gasoline to the fire, though, Israel faces the same external threats that it has faced year after year, generation after generation. We just had the operation in Janine, uh, and we had the wave of terror that uh, has hit and is still going on. Um, and our enemies are growing and growing and uh, are not resting. They want to put an end to the Jewish people. But, our dear guests, fear not, because we just so happen to have a doctor with us just for these ailments, who just so happened to write a book about just these challenges. Dr. Michael Oren is a distinguished American-born Israeli historian, author, and former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Known for his insightful work, including the bestseller Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide, and the award-winning Six Days of War. His influence in academia and politics is widespread. I think his, his biggest claim to fame, though, is that this is his fifth episode on the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast. Beyond, though, his academic contributions, Dr. Oren also left his mark on the political landscape. As a former member of the Knesset for the Kulanu Party, and as a deputy minister in the prime minister's office, his latest book, as we mentioned, 2048, The Rejuvenated State, brings forth a bold vision for Israel's future. It's this exciting work that brings us together tonight, just outside the, the golden walls of old Jaffa for a candid conversation on Israel's future. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Michael Oren. 
Thank you, Eitan. Thank you, Noor. You know, two nice Jewish boys. Where I grew up, that was a moving company. You know, you guys are moving, just not furniture. We do that on the side. No, it's just not, not furniture. Well, thank you. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, thanks to Soho House for hosting us. Thank you, Jay, for organizing this. Jay is the father of a new baby girl. We should give him a little yes. mazal tov, right? With Jonathan, I also want to thank the, uh, the selfless staff of uh, 2048. They're all volunteers, and especially Tammy, who definitely volunteers. And thank you all for being here. Yeah. Um, if I may. Let's yeah. jump in. Let's start off. Yeah. Go ahead, Eitan. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, given the context, um, there is a bill on the table, actually was voted on. Um, is this not something that you could get behind? Meaning, you talk about the judicial reform in your book. Why not this, why not this bill? Okay, a little bit of a peroration, if I will, okay? What's going on outside? We can't ignore it. Uh, we were supposed to drive here tonight, and we couldn't. We, couldn't. we had to walk and sweat. Um, my mother, let me start with my mother. My mother's 95 years old this month. And she, during her professional life, she was a family therapist. And her favorite line was, the presenting problem is not the problem. And I think you can say that's true about Israeli politics today. The presenting problem is not the problem. The presenting problem is, is reform. And um, there's a chapter in 2048 that I wrote three years ago, while I was in Knesset, on the need for judicial reform. Because everybody in the Knesset understood that, including the opposition, that the current situation, the relationship between the Knesset and the judiciary was not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable because the judiciary, most of the... Judges were appointed with both their judges were appointed by a committee, the majority members of which are sitting judges or other jurists, who, as they may be outstanding scholars, legal scholars, they are human beings. And when it comes to replacing them, they're going to choose quite naturally someone who agrees with themselves. And so, in terms of its worldview, the Supreme Court was perpetuating itself and marching in place circa 1992-1994, whereas the Knesset, which was reflecting shifts in Israeli public opinion and was shifting rightward, was moving in a completely different direction. And so in terms of worldview, these two bodies were getting further and further apart, and the Supreme Court was overturning pieces of legislation repeatedly. And this was not a sustainable situation, and people in Knesset were talking about passing an override law which meant that a certain majority of Knesset members, and the smallest majority would be 61, could overturn an overturn of the Supreme Court, which from my perspective was the end of judicial review. And the judicial review was one of the pillars of most democratic societies in the world, and we were gonna lose it. We we're gonna lose it. And I was very concerned about it, so I wrote this chapter that talked about how we could reform the Supreme Court, alter the way Supreme Court judges are chosen, uh, in a way that was very close to the American system, because if you are American here, and I'm not, I had to give up my citizenship, you have two, not one, but two opportunities to influence the composition of the Supreme Court. You vote for president and you vote for Senate. But Israelis, it, no one ever asks us, it's not even an electoral issue here. In America, it's a huge electoral issue for that reason. So making that, and also was, I, I talked about ways of, of limiting the scope of the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court of Israel had arrogated a scope which was unrivaled by any other Supreme Court in the world. This was not rocket science. These are ways you could reform the Supreme Court in a way that preserved the principle of judicial review. That's simple. But so you could do oh, that. Sorry. I'm almost finished. And um, this, is, this, this is the peroration part. Okay. So I get, to, I get to ramble on a little bit. Um, and so the, the compromise is out there. But the presenting problem is not the problem. 
what is the problem? And it's not just one problem, it's multiple problems. Obviously, it's right and left, it's religious or secular, it's center, center versus periphery. You know, go further down south to the development towns of south, see how many protests are going on down there. How many are going up in the development towns up north? How many, how many protests are going on in Kiryat Shimona right now, or in Nitivot? All right, so it's center and, and periphery. It is Ashkenazi and Sfaudi, because I live down the street from this and member of a, of a synagogue, which is, uh, is very mostly Mizrahi, and they see it completely differently. They say, this isn't about democracy, this isn't about, this isn't about you know, rights, it isn't even about the rights of minorities and majorities, it's about white privilege. It's about an Ashkenazi elite that is, that is gathering, and, and, and gathering around the last bastion of Ashkenazi elitist power in this country, which is the Supreme Court. And people were unwilling to accept the outcome of the previous election and relinquish power. So that is the problem. And there's the deepest, deepest problem of all, the deepest division is between what I would call normal Israel and abnormal Israel. That part of Israel that aspires as many of our founding fathers and mothers wanted to create a normal country in this, in this area. That would be Jewish in many ways in terms of our holidays, in terms of our language, but would basically be a normal country like any other country, you know, with great food and great beaches and equal rights uh, for LGBT, for women, that normal. And the other Israel that says, you know, wait a minute, 4,000 years ago, God said to Abraham, guess what? You're not going to be normal. And what has preserved the Jewish people for the last 4,000 years is being abnormal. So why, when we finally get a state, we want a normal state. We want an abnormal state. We want a Jewish state. And these are fundamental divisions going on behind the scenes here. Point being, and at the point of the book, that if we had sought a discussion about the need for judicial reform and made it open three years ago, maybe we could have avoided much of this, at least the presenting problem. But we have to begin to deal also with the not presenting problems, which are fundamental to this country, whether, whether developing the periphery, um, bridging between the ideas of a normal state and an abnormal Jewish state, our position in the world, our relationship uh, with our Palestinian neighbors and our Arab citizens. All of these issues have to be discussed now to avoid what's going on on the street outside. And it can be done. And that is the, I would say, the guiding principle of this book. So, if I'm reading between the lines what you're saying, essentially you're saying the following, that even if the reform were to pass in its original form, Israel would not be a dictatorship. Can we agree on that? I can be a dictatorship. I think it would be a liberal democracy. Okay? The question is what kind of democracy we want to have here. And, um, but it would still be a democracy. It would be a democracy in the sense that people would vote. Um, but I've always proceeded on the assumption, this goes way back, this has to do with my criticism of the neocons and the invasion of Iraq. I have the, the great, uh, the great, right, the great uh, privilege of testifying to Congress in 2003 against the Iraq war. And a lot of my colleagues at the time didn't talk to me uh, at the time and thought I was a, a racist and a fascist because I was against the Iraq war because I thought that the neocons had a very limited notion of what democracy was. They thought it was just about voting, but democracy is many things. Democracies is, is, are minority rights, they're women's rights, they're LGBT rights, they're children's rights if you're dealing with the Arab world. Um, and no one's actually thinking about that. And I think democracy is not just going to a poll. I think democracy is a civilization. Democracy is org an organizing principle for a culture. And I think that's what has to be preserved here, not just the mere you know, going to that, that ballot box and sticking an envelope every couple of years. 
But if a significant amount of the population disagree with that, 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 that definition of democracy, that you know, it means rights for this group or rights for this group or minority rights, then is it not undemocratic to then trump their voice in the polls? And that is the balance. You have to fight. There's no magic formula here. Look, I talk about the American example of the Supreme Court. You Americans here, you Americans have that ability to impact the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just passed a ruling revoking or rescinding Roe versus Wade, which was very unpopular in the United States. The decision, the majority of Americans, including Republicans, were in favor of keeping Roe versus Wade. So even in an American system where you have this, where you have this direct impact of public opinion on the composition of the Supreme Court, it's far from perfect. I think the so difference with Roe versus Wade is that yeah. Roe versus Wade was originally a court decision, meaning the court is overturning a decision of a lower court. Right. It wasn't necessarily a representation of the majority uh, of, of the American people. So we're, we're striving for, you know, we're not perfection here. We're trying to strive for some type of balance between the principle of judicial review, judicial oversight, and, and popular will, democracy. I mean, the great example is what happened with Arya Derry. And I always give this example. Arya Derry, uh, twice convicted uh, of, uh, of, cr of criminal activity, um, is, is stated to be a minister in this government. And the Supreme Court, by a majority of 10 out of 11, says that not only would that appointment be unreasonable, but would be extremely unreasonable. Okay. Great, those are the opinions of 10 out of 11 learned judges. But 400,000 Israelis voted for Arya Derry. So what takes precedence here? The Supreme Court or the people, the popular will? But if there's no check on the popular will at all, the popular will can go in all different directions. And maybe the next time it won't be Arya Derry, but someone who's actually a lot less savory <laughs> than Arya Derry. And we know from history that popular will unchecked can lead all different dangerous places. So you have to find, you know, as they say in, in Hebrew, translating from Aristotle, Ashvila Zahav, the golden mean. And it's not gonna be perfect. It is not gonna be perfect. Anybody thinks it is, then they are not dealing, then, then maybe they do want a dictatorship, because even that, you know, that would give you a perfect balance, wouldn't it now? If no one ever had to make a decision, and nothing was subject to, you know, to human interpretation, that'd be easy. Let's, you know, speaking of the judicial reform and the, and the state that's the, of the state of the union, the state that's going on outside, what are your thoughts on the nature of the opposition to this reform, on the nature of the protests that are going on outside? Today we saw a day of disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, a baby more like in, a, uh, in the road. In the yeah, there was yeah. a photo of a baby put in, uh, in front of uh, two buses. But anyway... Mm -hmm. There, the, the, the streets were empty. There was a lot of routine life being disrupted. What, what are your thoughts on that? We're at this situation now where both sides are accusing the other of mounting a coup. Both sides. Um, I, I've, heard now, I've met with the heads of both sides recently. Um, and both sides believe that the state is being stolen by the other side. Extremely dangerous, highly flammable. But uh, I think it would be wrong to think there's a symmetry here. There's not symmetry. Uh, there may be 150,000 people out protesting, but that means 9.4 million people are not out protesting. And they have a voice as well. And they may not be as equivocal as the people out protesting. They protested in the ballot. They protested in the ballot. Okay, but it's not just that. 
um, the people who fly on airplanes out of Ben Gurion Airport, the people who have to get to work on the ILON freely, they have rights too. They have a right to work. They have a right to go to a wedding or go to a funeral in another country. Those are also rights. No one should impugn the right of people to protest. But there is, there are definitely limits to the right of civil obedience, disobedience, and how far it can be taken. Um, I'm very concerned and disconcerted, a better word, about the precedents that have been set. The army has been politicized. The histrodute has been politicized. The police. The, the airport has been closed only for the second time in our history, and the first time was by Hamas. Now, I can envision a situation five years from now. We have a different government. Maybe you have a centrist government, and maybe there's a peace process, and Israel will be called upon to make territorial sacrifices. 50% of our officer corps wears a kippah on their head. And when the army is given the order to supervise uh, a withdrawal from any territory, they're going to say no. And then watch the airport be closed. Watch the history dude go on strike. This dude has never gone on strike for anything other than wages and conditions and work. Now it's gone on strike for the first time for a political aid. These are very bad precedents in these areas. So this is why I want to call attention to the symmetry. On one hand, the protesters have a case. I believe that we need judicial review. I believe that these particular reforms do not preserve judicial review. We don't. Uh, and they will be, it, it's a very slippery slope to some very bad legislation. And will put us on a list with some countries that I don't think we want to be on that list. On the other hand, the protesters, who I don't know what percentage of the population they actually represent, have uh, created very dangerous precedents for this country and are violating the rights of other Israelis. That simple. Also, we saw um, the head uh, of the Tel Aviv Police Department in uniform in a police department giving a political speech. I mean, more politicized than that, I think uh, you cannot find. But you know, today, uh, Michael, I heard uh, Leo Schlein, a very famous comedian here in Israel, on his Twitter calling for a civil war. So maybe it's imminent. You don't have to go to Leon. You have to go to, to Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak. Uh, um, I don't think, and, and it, we're in dangerous Which side territory. will you fight for? We're in dangerous territory here. Very dangerous territory. Um, and again, I want to I reiterate that the compromises here were easy. And uh, with the political will and with political oxygen, I, my deepest fear right now, that even if a compromise, a viable compromise were on the table, nobody will be able to accept it. Because you right now, the heads of the opposition were accept a compromise under the aegis of the president, and they go back to their own people they will be accused of disloyalty and treachery. And there's, there's no one who's hated more than a revolutionary who betrays his revolution. You know, there's a Robespierrean factor at play here. Um, I think that the, the prime minister and his government have very little leeway uh, for compromise at this point. So it, it, the oxygen has been taken up on both sides. Um, there was once a great scholar uh, late great scholar of Israeli politics, actually the first scholar of Israeli politics was an American Israeli named Asher Aryan. In a, in a Hillel-like fashion, I once asked him to give me the first rule of Israeli politics standing on one foot. <laughs> and he said to me, Michael, the answer is very simple. Israeli politicians always prefer collective to individual suicide. All right. And this is what you're seeing now played out in the, prime, in the president's house. It's collective. You know, if I don't get my way, then the whole place can burn down. And that's, a, again, a very dangerous scenario. 
So do you see a possibility for a Milchemet Achim, as they no, say in I Hebrew? No, I don't, because the, again, the sides are, are uneven. As I said, there's no symmetry. Okay. You've got maybe 150,000 people out there. And I think that the, the opposition is also fragmenting in many ways. So I, I'm not disclosing any names here, but I, I've met with heads of the, of the opposition. I'm always interested in hearing what people say. And um, one of them said to me, listen, we're taking the mask off because we went out to protest against the reforms, but really, we're, the reforms, again, the presenting problem is not the problem. It's not we're against the reform, we're against the government. We don't accept the outcome of the last election. And some of you who come from the United States will know that sounds familiar. We don't accept the outcome of the last election. We're out to bring down the government. We're gonna use the reforms as a means of bringing down the government. And I know many people, including people in my family, who aren't willing to protest for that. They're, they're willing to protest against the reforms to save democracy, but they're not willing to protest against the outcome of democracy as much as they abhor Benjamin Netanyahu and the people in his government. Still, they respect the system. This is the part of these protests are not respecting the system itself. And that, I think that's why you've seen the great drop off from 700,000, and you may debate about the actual numbers, but you agree that there were many more people out protesting uh, two months ago, the drop off to 150. And not everybody agrees with closing the airport and not everybody is closing you know, major highways. Uh, so they, they've lost a lot of, of support. And so there could be violence. Civil war requires actually two equal sides. What disturbs me is more as a, a the Confederacy way less people? Hmm? Wasn't the Confederacy, Confederacy way less people than the Union? Yeah, but it, yes, but were, but not that much, okay? Not, not 9.4 million versus 150,000. And in terms of territory, they were quite large, yeah. the Confederacy, much larger. Um, but Thucydides, writing about the, the, the Greek Civil War 2,500 years ago, said that the Civil War breaks out when the two sides no longer share a language, when they say the same word but mean two different things. And now we have the word coup, meaning two different things to two parts of the Israeli society, and we're in a Thucydian situation. We have, That's the, scary. We have the word democracy. Meaning, meaning two, two very different, different things. things. Sure, certain. And dictatorship. So, and uh, dictatorship. I, I wonder, you know, um, Given the fact that the, the opposition, the pseudo-militant opposition is, like, as you mentioned, 150,000 at best, and, and people can argue about the numbers, do you think it was a mistake by the Netanyahu government not to you know, cut it quick and say, we're passing this bill, pass it as it was in the, in the original form or as quickly like as Like a Band-Aid type of way, just like tear it off, yeah. go for it? it mistake maybe politically a mistake. Um, you know, morally uh, not a mistake because I think that the reforms as proposed were, were, were very bad um, and they could have been much, much better. And also the people making the reforms. Um, what can you say? They, you know, whether it be Derry or Ben Gvir or these people are not necessarily the people or even himself who is, you know, under trial. And I have strong feelings about that trial. I've been, I work with Netanyahu for many million years. Um, but still, these are not necessarily the people who you'd want, ideally, to advance a very far-reaching, uh, transformative set of, 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 of laws that will alter in a very significant way uh, the way this country has organized itself for many years. And that is not to say that the way it organized itself for many years was an ideal situation. Again, I'm going back to my neighborhood in Jaffa here, where people say the system was geared to support the elite for many years and to keep us down. And now, finally, when we've won at the polls, they want to keep us down again. And you've got to take these positions very seriously. Um, and I take them very seriously. What I see is a lot of right 
on both sides, but a, a tragic inability to actually compromise. So I, I think there is probably few people in Israel that are better fit to speak about uh, U.S.-Israel relations than, than you. Alas. And, you have uh, some scars <laughs> on your back. <laughs> Alas. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I wonder, you know, maybe this is a, a good segue, but do you, do you believe that this, this the proposed judicial reforms, the whole story that's been going on these past six months or so, has influenced, has, has significantly impacted U.S.-Israel relations? Well, I think they've been certainly made to significantly impact U.S.-Israel relations. Um, you know, insofar as some of the reforms are designed to make our system more similar to America's system, uh, particularly in the, in the selection of Supreme Court judges, I mean, I, for the life of me, do not understand why a sitting Supreme Court judge would have every role in, 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 in choosing his replacement. I just don't get that as a matter of principle. Um, the American system is not completely adapt, is, is applicable to our system because if we, if we only had politicians choosing Supreme Court judges, we would have a very uniform Supreme Court. And we need, we're a very diversified society. We wouldn't have an Arab, uh, we wouldn't have an Arab Supreme Court judge. We may not have a Haredi or even a woman Supreme Court judge, if that were the case. So we, we, I, I, in the book, I, if you read it, the section, it, it's a hybrid system of 15 support, uh, Supreme Court judges. I have eight of them being chosen by the Knesset and the government and, and uh, seven by a, a, an independent committee. Okay, but that's debatable. Um, U.S.'s relations are being impacted by so many different things uh, that, again, I hate to harp on this, the presenting problem is not the problem. The underlying problem is the far-reaching transformations that have occurred within the United States itself. I came back a decade ago uh, from my uh, service in Washington, and I came back with a very harsh message for Israeli policymakers. It shocked them at the time. No, it wouldn't. And the message was very simple but shocking, and it was, uh, gentlemen, ladies, we are on our own. This is not the America you remembered. I mean. As a much younger paratrooper in Beirut in 1982, we knew if we got into hot water that President Reagan was going to send the Marines and get us out. But guess what? The Marines aren't coming anymore. They're not. We're on our own. And this was very tough to hear at the time. The good news was, hey, we're not what we were back in 67 or 73 or even 82. We're a much stronger country, and we can stand on our own two feet. It won't be easy. America has changed. And it, it, you could have heard that not just from the Israeli ambassador, you could have heard it from the South Korean ambassador, the Japanese ambassador, the German ambassador, we all have the same message, a hard one. And we're still dealing, we're still grappling with that. Now I think it's common knowledge. But, uh, and there are transformations that are occurring in America that are completely beyond our control. We didn't invent wokeism, we didn't invent intersectionality, you know, we didn't invent so many of the issues that are shaking American society and dividing American society. And yet we're on the receiving end in so many ways. Not only that some of these movements are, are highly critical of us, but it is, is causing America to, glance, to move inward and not project outward. I've always said that I would prefer an American president who is highly critical of us, but willing to project American power on the world to a president who got up in the morning and sang Hatikva, but is unwilling to project American, American power on the world. That was our interest in a strong and assertive in the United States. It's not there now. It's not. And by the way, American support for the Ukraine is, is no substitute. It just isn't. So, you know, the, the reform and the criticism of the reform, and I'm on the Israeli press nonstop, including today, talking about Biden's criticism of us, which I think is very inappropriate and wrong. Yes, America has an interest in Israeli democracy and, 
every meeting I had with any American official on both parties always began with uh, praising our shared values and preserving those shared values. But there's another, that, that is saying that and having a president of the United States criticizing an internal political situation here I think is inappropriate. I think it's bad for America because other countries in the world are looking at this and saying, hey, maybe we're next. But it's also, it's also inappropriate in so far as the United States over the course of the last year and a half has had an insurrection. Many people will debate my use of that word, but something that looks like an insurrection, an attempt to take over the Capitol. It has a large segment of the electorate who refuse to accept the outcome of, of an election. And I don't think America is in a position to be, to, be, to be lecturing any other country, particularly not this country, about its democracy right now. I think a little humility be called for. Last point, and it's important that, that deserves to be reiterated. Israel is one of maybe the five countries on the planet, and you can count them, you know, Australia, where's our Australia in there? Australia and Canada, New Zealand, the United States, one of the five countries in the world that's never known a second of non-democratic governance. And we're the only countries on that list that has never known a second of peace. What destroys democracies again and again is war, conflict. We deserve credit for that. We deserve respect for our democratic system, even if that system produces people who are abhorrent <laughs> to many people. And, uh, and I think that that's showing disrespect, and I think it's showing a lack of humility right now. In the book, you take it even a step further and you call for cutting the feeding pipe, the USAID, to Israel. It's but for a different reason. Yeah, but very different. Yeah, but who gives up free money? Yeah. <laughs> you think it's free? Oh, it ain't free. No, this thing is a free lunch. It comes with a lot, a lot of strengths. I was the only member of the Israeli government to oppose the Memorandum of Understanding of 2016, which was the renewal of what had been the Trump, the, the Bush MOU, which was uh, $3.1 billion a year. The Obama MOU brought us up to $3.8 billion a year, and I opposed it. And I opposed it for a long list of reasons. I still oppose it. Um, I think that uh, it comes with entirely too many strings. Many of them are too so technical to go into now. It has to do with a lot of three-letter acronyms that are important to our relationship, OSP, QME, uh, MOU, um, MOUSE, IOU, believe a lot of IOUs. But the fact of the matter is we, can't, we, have, we, we, don't, we, we cannot receive from this aid what we want. We're basically told what we want. It's a subsidy for the American arms industry. Uh, we can't sell what we want to whom we want. But okay. it got us the arrow. It got us the Iron Dome. No, that isn't, that isn't aid. That, those are joint projects. Those are just, these, that's aid beyond the aid. These are plus-ups from, from Congress. None right? of the funding for the... That's not for included. Those, for the production? No, no that's not included. This, this is aid that we, that, that, that we buy. The, it got us the F-35. If you think okay. the F-35 is a good deal. I'm not so certain. We don't have pilots very expensive aircraft, aircraft with limited range and a limited payload, and it's the last manned combat aircraft in history, yeah. and we've got a whole bunch of them now. And no pilots um, to fly them anymore, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it, but the, the major reason I oppose the aid goes back to what I was saying earlier about we're on our own. The importance of the aid was never monetary. The principal importance of the aid was the message that it sent to the world that the world's most powerful nation stood behind the Jewish state. That was the message. But that message has been greatly diluted. And so the value of the aid goes down, especially given the strings and, the, and, and all the conditions that come with it. And so I suggest that instead of aid, the United States and Israel embark on a, a policy of, or a program of cooperation. 
that it's not a handout to anybody. A handout that enables certain American politicians to say, oh, we give you aid, therefore we can criticize you. I mean, we're a sovereign country. We're a strong and relatively wealthy country. We should never be in the position of people saying to us, we can criticize you, we can tell you what to do because we give you money. Heck with that. Heck with that. By the way, I just recently got a letter from people who are staging the, the, uh, the protests in the United States against mm. the government. You'll like this. And what Israelis. Are the reasons they say, Israelis, not just Israelis and Jews, American mm -hmm. Jews. One of the reasons they're saying that they can lead these protests is because they pay taxes and those taxes go to pay for Israeli military things. I mean, I don't know how many dollars per year they actually give to the state of Israel compared to what I give to the state of Israel with my 55% taxes, all right? But I find that deeply offensive. Also, those are people. I find that deeply offensive, all right? Keep the aid. All right, but let's, let's change it. Let's embark on a program where United States and Israel are equal partners in developing capabilities that we both need, whether it be laser technology, cyber technology, but let's end this handout situation. So that's what I feel. Those Israelis in the States, by the way, yeah. just a side note, go to the ballot and elect judges in the ballot, and then they protest about our reforms. Yeah, like, just, uh, as I said yeah, earlier, yeah. we're trying to make, in some ways, these reforms are trying to make the system look a lot more, more American. Yeah. Hmm? So you you um, you kind of led the efforts against a hostile American or a hostile to Israel American president back when uh, Obama was very critical and towards the end of his tenure made some uh, questionable uh, decisions. Do you think that we're in a better or worse place with Biden? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Still a diplomat. No, it's not a diplomat. Not a diplomat. I don't have to be diplomatic. I'm not. Uh... Not getting that huge, I'm not getting the big shekels from the foreign ministry anymore. Um, in a worse situation because President Obama, this goes back to what I was saying before, still had the authority to be, to project American power in the world. He didn't use that authority usually, though he did embark on a very ambitious, you know, um, extraterritorial extra uh, assassination policy against terrorist leaders around the world, something the United States would be hard-pressed to do today. Um, he didn't use that authority. Today, I don't think the American president has that authority. I mean, not ancient history. 20 years ago, George Bush sent 600,000 American soldiers into Iraq, folks. I like to see the United States say send 600 soldiers anywhere in the world today. Anywhere. That is a profound, profound transformation. So in that way, we're worse off. We're better off because I know Joe Biden. Here's a little dirty secret. Um, during the first uh, Obama presidency, first How term, dirty? Hmm? How dirty? You're going to hear. <laughs> Brace yourself. During the first Obama, it's not well known, there was a Secretary of State known Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton boycotted the Israeli embassy. It has never been done in our history. I mean, going back to 1948-49. Wouldn't return my phone calls. And this was part of a program. Uh, of, the, of the Obama administration to take our relationship down, to take our relationship down a couple of nuts. We have a special relationship with the United States. Obama sought to normalize that relationship by closing off the access of the ambassador uh, to the Secretary of State. My predecessor used to talk to the Secretary of State every two days. She wouldn't return my phone calls. One person wouldn't go along with this policy, and that was the Vice President. And he became what known as my POC. There's another three-word, three-letter, <laughs> triliteral acronym. Uh, he was my point of contact in the administration. So I spent a lot of time with Joe Biden and got to like him enormously. Here's a person who deeply cares about Israel. Um, I had the best Rosh Hashanah parties in Washington. Uh, his staff, similarly, uh, Tony Blinken then, who was his, uh, 
his chief of foreign policy staff, were very, very similar. And uh, in times of great crisis, and there was unending crisis, we were in rolling crises, Biden was the person you could go to. He was the go-to guy. And yes, he is a Democrat. And the Democratic Party is at odds with us on key issues, the peace process, the Iran nuclear issue. But if you had to choose somebody <laughs> to be at loggerheads with, this is the guy. Yet clearly he is not you know, at the top of his game that he was. I don't know how many of us are going to be at age 80. Um, and and that, is, that is unfortunate. But you know, I personally know I've been involved in situations where uh, Biden has stood up to his own party. Um, most, I think, most dramatically during the 2021 fighting with Gaza, where every night he came out and said, Israel has a right to defend itself, Israel has a right to defend itself, and the progressives were going nuts. And they're angry at him. People forget, he's got, he's got internal politics too. They're angry at him because he didn't reopen the American consulate in East Jerusalem. He's not condemning Israeli Jewish building in Judea and Samaria. He's not reanimating the peace process. They're angry at him. So I think I said on the news today, he's throwing them a few crumbs. One of those crumbs has written on it, inscribed on it, Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> I'm not inviting him to the White House. Because um, I think he's afraid of a, politically, internally, of, of the progressives now putting up a candidate who would um, outflank him from the left and, uh, and take away votes. And so he's, he's throwing them something. Okay, I want to invite Bibi. Let's see what happens. You say he's afraid. And yes. I ask this in all seriousness. Mm -hmm. Do you really feel, I mean, we've all seen the gaffes yeah. and the videos. Do you think they're just gaffes, or do you, do you think he's fit to run for re-election? I'm not going to say anything. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, he has been a famous or infamous gaffer for years, <laughs> and he never stays on script. And sometimes it plays to our advantage. He, he arrived here, what, just over a year ago, and the first thing he said when he got on the tarmac was, I am a Zionist. I think, the, the, I think a significant part of his party had a heart attack at that moment, all right? Um, he also, in an interview with uh, Yonit Levy, said that the United States would use force to stop Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. That was totally off script. You know, the, the defense establishment, you know, had a coronary at that one. So he go, he's, been, he's always been like this. But it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit at a different level, you don't think? I don't know. I don't, I'm not there, I'm not with him. I'm not in the room with him. I know what he was like 10 years ago. And he was extremely sharp. And um, was he shaking hands with invisible people? <laughs> shook hands with me. I, I, I was in the, in the delegation that met him when he came here. And he came up to me and says, Michael Lord, how you doing, man? I'm like, gave him a high five. Yeah, that's good. That's pretty cool. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's if you want a way out, just let us know. No, it's not even a way out. I, don't, you know, I, I honestly, honestly don't know. Nobody knows. No one knows what's going on in that room. You know, we all, some of us are old enough to remember the second term of Ronald Reagan, when he started confusing reality with some of the, the uh, plots from his movies. <laughs> Publicly, I remember when I did this. He didn't do this, it was a movie. That was disturbing, um, you know. Amendment 25. But, um, so you know, that, you know that these dangers exist. I, I can only speak from my, I, I come from, you know, most of my family, of course, didn't move here. I moved here alone uh, about 100 years ago with a backpack. And um, my family in the United States, I don't think there's a Republican in my entire family in the United States, not a one. If he was, they're closet Republicans. And they're, I just came back you know, a couple weeks ago and they're saying they can't vote for Joe Biden. Not because they don't like Joe Biden, because they're afraid of getting Kamala Harris as president. And that was interesting to hear. And, uh, and they're really in a quandary because they 
obviously don't want Trump, but they don't want her either. And that's a very difficult situation. Uh, really quickly before yeah. we move to the next topic. Let's talk about Israel. Yeah, yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah, but do you, uh, so yeah. in relation to that, do you think that um, the conclusion would be that Israel is better off with a Republican president? Don't know. Again, I don't know because, here's why. What's important for me and a president? Again, I said it's the willingness to project power, the willingness for America to be what they used to call the policemen of the world, to lead the free world. Remember that archaic term, the free world? Uh, and more specifically, America fulfills three functions for us in wartime. It gives us logistic aid. Um, God bless the IDF. We expend ammunition at an incredible rate. We fire a million bullets a day. And virtually every time we've gone to war since 2006, we run out of bullets and different types of ammunition. We have to request it from the United States. Underground here, there's $2 billion worth of pre-positioned American arms. The warehouses, we have to ask for the keys to go in there and take out the arms. We write them down, we pay for them, okay? But they're crucial. In 2014, uh, at the height of the fighting with Gaza, we asked for certain types of ammunition from the Obama administration, and Obama said no. Bad precedent, bad precedent, especially as we're facing the possibility not just of a limited war, but of a regional war uh, with Iran, which would include a war with Hezbollah, Hamas, Shiite militias in Iraq, Houthi rebels in Yemen, hitting, Israel being hit by the IDF estimate with between four and 6,000 rockets a day. Right? That's something we've never encountered before. We're gonna need access to those warehouses. Two, we need what I call the diplomatic Iron Dome. Who's gonna cast the veto in the Security Council? Because we're gonna get condemned in the Security Council. Because to stop the rockets coming in from Lebanon, they are situated under 200 Lebanese villages, 150,000 rockets under 2,000. The IDF has been training to go village, village, house to house. Civilians are gonna be killed. We're gonna be condemned. We're gonna be condemned as war criminals. Who's gonna cast that veto? Third is what I call the day after help. Who's going to, who's going to, to negotiate and implement a day after scenario? Uh, rebuilding uh, different relationships with our neighbors. Uh, that's the United States. And I have to ask myself, okay, what president is willing to do that. A democratic president who, albeit heads a country that wants to focus on itself but actually cares about Israel, or a Republican president, I don't know, who may be extreme isolationist and is not gonna get involved at all. And these are very, again, I don't have the actual answers. Um, I know we have a problem and a growing problem with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But we also have a, pro a growing problem, and you're gonna hear it here because now I'm a futurist, I'm not just a, a historian. You're going to see a resurgence of the, I don't wanna say anti-Israel, but close to anti-Israel conservative wing of the Republican Party. What used to be called the Pat Buchanan wing of the, of the, of the, of the Republican Party. You know, the, the country club guys. And I see it now insidiously in various op-eds. Jason's shaking his head. You know this stuff? I see it coming. Watch it in 10 years. You heard it here first. Um, mm -hmm. In the book, you put a lot of weight. Like the book is a, a little bit depressing at times. Mm -hmm. and, Just uh, at times? Yeah, you know, occasional, you know, I took Tipperlex before I read it. <laughs> but, um, but also there's hope, and mu much of the hope relies on the Arab-Israeli society, right? You put a lot of weight on that. It's in Arabic. 
Yes. I'm very, I was very Three adamant languages. about putting it in Three languages. English, right. Hebrew, and Arabic. So maybe yeah. later you tell us a little bit if you got the feedback from Arab. Not yet. Okay. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Maybe yes. here outside we, yes. we can ask people. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, though, we are in Jaffa. And in May 2021 here, we had huge riots. Jews couldn't walk in the streets here outside. It was, uh, I don't need to tell you, you were in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, we had so the Bedouins and the Negev who were armed to the teeth. And yes. Which is a whole different issue. I deal right. with the Bedouin. I spent a lot of time talking about Bedouins. So we'll talk about the Bedouins too. But generally, do you really think there's a future where uh, Jews and Arabs live peacefully side by side in Israel? I think there's a future where we, we, we understand that neither of us are going anywhere and that we find a modus vivendi. I think there's a, a future where um, Israeli Arabs will consider themselves Israelis and be proud of being Israelis. Because now, according to the polls, a majority of Israeli Arabs actually think they're proud, have said that they're proud of being Israelis, and that's their identity. 50, well, over 50% already. That's very high. And... And there's a, there is also emerging, you can hear it in the streets of, of Jaffa, a, a rather unique Arab-Israeli identity. There's certainly an Israeli, uh, Arab-Israeli lexicon, which is, which is you know, peppered with Hebrew all the time. It's amazing. I listen to, I listen to language. I studied Arabic for years, and I, I'm so acute to the language and hearing all the Hebrew that people speak. Um, and some people have gone far. I don't know if this is true, but that some of that the Israeli... Uh, it's really Arabic is becoming unintelligible to Arabs in the Gulf because of the amount of Hebrew in it. Very interesting, because I speak you know, Hebrewish at home. And um, there is that modus vivendi. In the book, I talk about uh, the New Deal. And for those of you with a sense of American history, that term has a certain resonance to it. Uh, the New Deal is, is this, that Israel declares war against inequality against discrimination in a Churchillian sense, discrimination in the, in the fight discrimination in the classroom, in the media, um, in this, in the, in, in the, in the, certainly in the workplace, fight discrimination, not just say it, but actually fight it. And I have, in, in my own experience, the, you know, growing up during the civil rights movement, what that looked like. That's on one side, but the quid pro quo is that Israeli Arabs acknowledge the legitimacy of a Jewish nation state and their role as a minority in that nation state. You know, the majority of nations in the world, there are like 194 nations in the world, majority of them are nation states. And most of those nation states have non-national minorities in them, which are loyal to that state. And the example I give in the book is Anglo Jewry. Who's from Great Britain here? Anybody British? Hello, Great British, yes, yes. Tell me, have you ever saluted the Union Jack? No, No, never saluted that flag? Most, most, I think Anglo-Jews would look at that flag and say, that's my flag. And many of them have served that flag. Many of them have fallen for that flag. That flag has not one but three crosses on it. Do you ever see, sing God Save the Queen or King? Yeah. Okay. So you sing an anthem to the head of the Church of England. Um, <laughs> why can't an Israeli Arab, Muslim or Christian, salute our flag? Why can't they even sing Hatikva? Why not? Why can't you know, Arabs kill Arabs pretty much with the alacrity around the Middle East. Why can't Arabs serve in our army and defend us, our state? Because the argument was the Arabs shouldn't be at a position of killing other Arabs, as if that doesn't happen elsewhere in the Middle East. So that's the New Deal. Uh, Is it achievable? Perhaps. Um, There have been very positive indications that this has happened anyway. Because 20 years ago, after the outbreak of the First Intifada, 
Israeli Arabs were protesting about increased police protections in their neighborhoods. Now they're protesting because there's not enough police protection in their neighborhoods. All right, the Ram Party, and I have all sorts of interesting, you know, different opinions about the Ram Party, which was the uh, Islamicist Arab Party that was in part of the previous coalition. You know, Mansour Abbas, the head of that party, says, listen, I understand that I'm a minority in a Jewish nation state, and I'm going to be loyal to that nation state. Uh, that was a precedent, very interesting. Uh, and I think that some of the members, I spent, you know, years in Knesset listening to Arab members of Knesset getting up and talking about the occupation, the occupation, fascism, and and racism, and when they say the occupation, the old world, they are not talking about Judea and Samaria, guarantee you, okay, the occupation. And they're not doing anything for the communities. They're not bringing them education and equal opportunities and infrastructure. Um, and I think that increasingly Israeli Arabs are gonna say, listen, our future lies with cooperation with this country and not opposition to this country. The opposition is not gonna get us anywhere. And certainly not supporting the corrupt, you know, Palestinian Authority, which is what, you know, Ahmed Tibi does. So, I think that there, there are definitely possibilities if we, we meaning Israeli Jews are smart about it, and we offer them a new deal. I mean, I don't know. Forgive me for the pessimism. You triggered Eitan with the yeah, new <laughs> deal. The new no, deal is the new a, deal. The new deal yeah. I can live with. But yeah. I, forgive me for the pessimism. But I, I think, I mean, looking at the Bedouin community, we, we well, touched a whole the, different story. Do you, do you, so do you see that community as an opportunity as well? Do you, see, do you see Bedouins right now? I see, the I, see the, I see the Bedouin as a potential existential threat, and I say this unequivocally in the book, unreservedly existential threat. And people haven't talked about it, you know, in a great deal. They're beginning to talk about it. And keep in mind that the whole provenance of this book began as an effort to get Israelis, particularly young Israelis, talking about our future. All right. So my positions in the book are designed to to stimulate a discussion, not to be exhausted and not to be uh, conclusive in any way. But about the Bedouin, let's talk about the Bedouin, shall we? Nobody we knows shall. how many Bedouin there are on the Negev. I lived in the Bedouin for lived in the Bedouin. I lived in the Negev for years. I watched it disappear in front of my eyes. In front of my eyes. No one will ever take a, a census about the, the Bedouin population of the Negev. It is probably the most um, explosive, if you were. Maybe it's a negative, it's a pejorative term, but the, the, the highest natural growth rate of any population in the world. If you had to ballpark the population. Mm-hmm. If you had to ballpark the population. I'd say over 300,000. I'd say over 300,000 and expanding very rapidly. Um, the, obviously, this is a, a great credit to Israeli uh, medicine, uh, but it's also a product of polygamy, which is illegal in the state of Israel, but none of our laws are enforced south of the Negev, south of, of Beersheba. And there's not a section of the book devoted to the Bedouin, but it comes under the rubric of the meltdown of Israeli sovereignty. Um, I say that we Jews were, we didn't have sovereignty for 2,000 years, and one sunny day in May 1948, we found ourselves, woke up and found ourselves the owner of a sovereign country, and we had no idea what sovereignty means, and we still don't. South of Beersheba, which is 62% of this country, there's no sovereignty. And so there are laws against polygamy, but 30%, upwards of 30% of Bedouin males have more than one wife, mostly four wives. And these four wives are not like Bedouin man falls in love with third wives, third wife. Bedouin man acquires third wife. And they acquired them from Judea and Samaria, from Gaza, from Jordan, and beyond. This is chattel slavery that comes on, that is not that's going under under you know Israeli democracy. Talk about democracy! All right, have, these women have no rights. And where is the Israeli women you know feminist movement? Where's women's rights standing up for the women of the Negev? I don't see it. Huge families with Israel's, um, I would say, in most cases, laudatory child subsidy policy 
a Bedouin male could have 40, 50 children and never have to work, do very, very well. Um, and that's just the beginning of the problem. There's also no enforcement against illegal building. Now, the latest figures I have are probably from about 10 years ago. Uh, reports that were submitted to the government by Natan Sharansky and Badoron Almog talked about 400,000 illegal structures in the negative. You know, we build a, a one millimeter addition to my balcony in Jaffa. I'll have a police car there in a second. You can build half a city in the negative. No one's going to give you any, any, any trouble. Right? 400,000 illegal structures. It's also worth noti right. noticing that how they live. Right? People don't, who, who never saw it in their eyes. Yes. They really live, I don't want to say nasty things, but they live in subhuman conditions, right? But and they don't have to. They, they're also buying up a lot of property in Beersheba. <laughs> really. uh, and they're, they're very wealthy. I, I can go in on to the detail of this. Um, I was very proud. For about a year and a half, I was in charge of the, 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 the Judean Samaritan Gaza for the government. I don't wish this on anybody. Uh, and, but I learned a tremendous amount. And one of the things I learned was that the level of Palestinian workers coming into Israel every day is now higher than it was before the Second Intifada. About 150,000 Palestinians enter Israel every day to work. And they pass through 37 checkpoints, and all of them but two, they wait between five and seven minutes. It's amazing. What you hear about you know, all the troubles they go through checkpoints, that's just not true uh, going into Israel. But a greater number of Palestinians come into Israel illegally every day. And the majority of those Palestinians coming into work illegally in Israel are working in the fields of Bedouin, Israeli Bedouin, because they don't have to work their own fields. How about that one? And that has all sorts of far-reaching security ramifications. Some of it is wheat fields. Also. All right. So there's no sovereignty over gun ownership, over drugs, drug trade, over a certain amount of, of, of human trafficking. 62% of the country know uh, no sovereignty. And this is getting everyone very quiet now, isn't it? Talking about Bedouin. But that's just one of the problems we're going to deal with. Again, the solution here is not outrageous. The solution is we have laws, enforce them. Yeah, but invest is that really money, invest resources in getting the, the power that is capable of enforcing the laws because we are hemorrhaging police. But isn't that how police. you create, exacerbate the problem? I mean, if you try and shove law and order down the throats of people who want to live their lives a different way, I mean, you're, you're, you're bound to get pushback. Yep. Guess what? We're going to get pushback. All right. But that's Possibly true. very that's violent true. That's pushback. That's true of law enforcement. Ask any police officer whether he gets pushback in enforcing laws anywhere. Okay. You'd have a mini war. Okay. If that's there. what it takes to enforce our, our sovereignty. Or a majority of the Bedouins in prison. Yeah, right now, the, from what I understand what goes on in the South, there's almost like a conveyor belt of, 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 of Bedouin who are brought before <laughs> court and they're just released because we don't have room in the prisons right now. Sure, we need the infrastructure. What you basically say but is... But again, you have to meet with a, with a decision. Decision that we, we are a sovereign nation. I talked about you know, the umbrage I felt by when, when any foreign leader passes judgment over internal issues in Israel. Okay? I have this problem with the French president all the time. All right. that, uh, that it's, it's insult to our sovereignty, to our laws. We are a sovereign democratic nation, but we have to begin to respect ourselves as a sovereign democratic nation and enforce. I, I haven't talked, I've talked about the South. How about the North? Try being a, an Israeli Jewish farmer in the Galilee. Try having a herd and see how long it lasts. Try having a farm and see how, how long your land lasts. And you know, there's a wonderful organization some of you know, Hashomer Hadash. 
which is made up of volunteers who go out and light bonfires at night to preserve uh, Israeli Jewish farms from poachers, from people who take the land. But it, it's a wonderful organization. But this is the job of the Israeli police. It's not the job of Shemir Hadass, but there's simply not enough police. And because we have not made a decision to enforce our sovereignty. And that, to me, is a dereliction of our historic duty as Jews who have come back into our, to our ancient homeland as sovereigns. Before we move uh, to the Q&A, um, you mentioned the Palestinians from the PA coming here. Um, and that's also a huge problem that we're going to have to deal with eventually. And I was wondering if you can give us a yes or no question, uh, answer so to the ultimate question. <laughs> Should the Palestinians have a state? And the, answer, and the answer is, they should, but can they? I mean, if the Somalians can. You know, in, ideally, there's a notion of, um, of uh, self-determination, which is the inalienable right of any people. Certainly, we are claiming that right. And the truly remarkable, one of the most remarkable achievements of the state of Israel, along with the fact that we are democratic after all this upheaval, is that you could take... Jews from 70 different nations around the world that don't share a common language, don't share a common uh, culture, certain, you know, common, a common history and memory and, and faith, and you stick them in a land with no natural resources, surrounded by adversaries, no allies, and they're going to create one of the world's highest functioning nation states. And that's what we have. I mean, the water that comes out of our tap is better than anything in a bottle. Okay, you can buy. I mean, you can count literally on one hand the amount of countries that is. I mean, really, it's very highly functioned. Nations say, for all the dysfunction you see, you should try living in some other country. Try living in a lot of American countries, cities today. And, um, but the number of, na of nations in the world that are capable of sustaining a nation state are very, very few, because there are tens of thousands of peoples in the world, but very, very few of them are capable of sustaining a nation state. And no one ever asked that question about the Palestinians. Are they capable of sustaining a nation state? Do they know what that state's going to be? Is there any debate that goes among the Palestinians? What kind of nation they actually want in the future? Um, in, the, in the years between the 1880s and the 1940s, you know, the, 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 the formative years of the Zionist movement of the issue, we had tremendous state, the debates about whether the country was going to be a socialist or capitalist, secular or uh, a religious. Um, and those debates proved to be germane in, in determining the nature of this country. You don't, nothing's going on the side of the Palestinians. Even in Gaza, they can't maintain sovereignty over the, of the territory they've been given. We gave them basically a mini-state there. It breaks down. I mean... So why should they have a state then? No. They should have a state. It could be ideal that they, as a people, they deserve a state. And ideally, we could live side by side in peace with that state. But... What are the chances that that state, are, if, even if it were enfranchised, would fall apart in a matter of days? Because everybody knows that if the IDF were to pull out of Judea and Samaria, that Mahmoud Abbas's days would literally be numbered, perhaps on one hand, and the whole thing's going to fall apart. And we'll find ourselves in cell house not being within rocket range, we'll find ourselves being in rifle range. I see Judea and Samaria on the back of my window in Jaffa. <laughs> And uh, it, it, not that far away. And nobody, but nobody, 
And very few people today I know who have, have any experience with this at any level can say that, that this is a serious option. And I will go on to say further that uh, American foreign policy and the foreign policy of much of the West, by harping on the two-state solution, which is an oxymoron, an oxymoron, are actually doing an immense injustice to the Palestinians because there's so many different ways you could move forward with trusteeships and, 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 and federal solutions and cantonment solutions and autonomy plus and state minus. There are many ways you can do. But by harping on the one venue, which has actually no chance of success, because I, I, the only thing I can ever get from the Palestinians is that there's one thing they want is they don't want us here. Okay? That's, what their, that's their definition of a state, is a state that doesn't have us. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. Just for those of you who don't know this, the American position is two states for two peoples. Do you know that the Palestinians, not a single Palestinian leader has ever accepted that formula? Why? Because we're not a people. There was never a temple on the Temple Mount. The Jewish people No Holocaust. Were, no, the Holocaust, even that's that. Some of them will actually admit the Holocaust. But, not Jews, the Bumazin, were, but Jews were killed not because they were a Jewish people. They were killed because of the Jewish religion. Okay? And... Um, we're not a people. If we're not a people, we don't have the right to self-determination. I'm actually saying the Palestinians have a right to self-determination. They just can't actualize it. They will not say that about us. And even if there were a Palestinian state, bear with me for one more line, you would have a Jewish state that recognizes the legitimacy of the Palestinian nation state, but you wouldn't have a Palestinian nation state that would not recognize the legitimacy of the Jewish nation state. And you'd have immediate irredenta. Immediate irredenta. Um... The problems here are very, very deep. I had privilege, italics mine, of, of being uh, one of the Israeli representatives to the last round of negotiations with the Palestinians. And in those negotiations, I heard something that made me think that I'd wasted 20 years in a university, thinking that all this is about borders and about security and Jerusalem and settlements. Shtuyot. Palestinians said to me, you want us to recognize you as the Jewish state? You are asking us to negate our own identity. Does that bear repeating? Yes. You are asking, you're saying, we want, what are our, our principal demands? They recognize that we recognize us as a Jewish state, because that would end the irredenta, okay? The mutual recognition of the right of a people to self-determination. They're unwilling to do that. He's saying further than that. Not only will we not recognize you as a Jewish people endowed with that right, but by doing so, we'll be negating our own identity as the Palestinian people. Now, we wake up in the morning, I don't know if everyone's Jewish here or Israeli, you wake up in the morning, we're Israelis and Jewish, not because we're not Palestinians. They wake up in the morning and they're Palestinians because they're not us. And all of a sudden, as they say in Hebrew, nafala simon, that this is about identity. And go solve that one. Go create a situation where we can have a two-state solution where, actually based, where we are not in any way negating their identity. That is extremely extremely difficult. Wow. On that optimistic note, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's optimistic if, you, if, you, if you're not harping on that solution, okay, on that yeah. one policy. And by the way, there are a lot of people in American policymaking who understand this, but they're inhibited by politics. So we touched on, I think, not even 10% of what you write about in the book. So I want to open it up, and we're not going to be able to cover all the topics, but I want to open it up to the audience. I'm sure you guys have tons of questions. Um, don't be shy. Uh, and we'd love to hear your questions. Michael, I'm sure we'd love to take them. So feel free. Oh, man. Yes. Jay. Okay. Okay. You. you don't need a mic. First of all, thank you, gentlemen. No, Jay never needs a mic. 
I'm going to take for granted that 2048, the second hundred years of Israel, is going to be without the support of the majority of the Jewish diaspora. Uh -uh. How much does that bother you, that inevitability? <coughs> yeah. Is there anything we can do about it? And since we're not going to have the support of the, the majority of, let's say, American Jews, what does that mean for us strategically? What, yeah. what are we I just disagree with it entirely, okay? So let me explain why I disagree with it. And maybe I'm, poly maybe I'm Pollyannish, okay? Me. Who would accuse me of being Pollyannish? Um, Tammy from Colombia. Um, there's a Jewish diaspora out there. They don't have, they don't have J Street. <laughs> they don't have JVP. Everyone's Zionist. And we talk about the diaspora. You have to include South American Jewry. You've got to include European Jewry. There are other Jewries out there beside American Jewry. I'm sorry. American Jewry doesn't even like referring to itself as diaspora Jewry. Go call American Jews diaspora, they get insulted. All right, this is not diaspora, this is the Holy Land. All right, so that's one. Let's not overlook other Jews from other places, whether in Australia or South Africa. You know, that, these, these populations are solidly pro-Israel. The American Jewish community also, I am, I would say, strangely optimistic about the future of the American Jewish community. Yes. The American Jewish community is like many physicists say that the, the universe is contracting and expanding at the same time. Same thing is true of American Jewry. Okay, it's contracting through assimilation, intermarriage, we all know the rates, but it's also expanding. It's expanding in the Orthodox communities. The New, York, New York has had now eight years of positive Jewish growth before, and these are people who are having very big families and almost zero intermarriage, and that's includes in more modern Orthodox, almost zero intermarriage. And the Jewish community in, in the United States, you know, 25 years ago, may be smaller numerically, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be more connected Jewishly. And through its connections with Judy, through Judaism, we connected to the state of Israel. As ambassador, um, I, ha I held the first series of meetings with the Haredi leadership of the United States, behind closed doors. Fascinating, fascinating. First of all, you realize that there is no Haredi community of the United States, the Haredi communities, and they're very different. But they had the same message to me, saying, yeah, okay, we don't sing Hatikva and we don't salute the flag, all right? Uh, but we are actually the true Zionists. We send money to Israel, we send our kids to Israel, we are connected deeply emotionally, religiously, spiritually to the state of Israel, to, to Israel itself. And I think that that, in many ways, will color the future of American Jewry and gives me a, a, a source of optimism. Yeah. Sorry, Jay. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? Yeah. Yes. Hi. Okay. Uh, with everything that is happening in the last six months in Israel, I couldn't wonder by thinking that there's some point that in the country should be either separated federally or something is going to happen you know, somewhere along the line, how before it happened, like they divided Yehuda and Israel and then the 10 tribes were lost. So. I was thinking if you ever consider this division of Israel into federal or provinces or something that will like change the way politics are being held in Israel. Uh, no, I don't think about federal solutions for, for Israel. It could be a federal solution with, with the Palestinians of, of Judea and Samaria. 
uh, but not within Israel, you know, among the Jews themselves. You're, not, you're talking about, say, a, having a Haredi canton, you know, around Bnei Brak in Jerusalem, or a, you know, a secular canton in, in greater Tel Aviv, Gush Dan. Uh, no, I don't think that's possible, but you or can do. Or a hipster do. canton in Florentine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what you can do is have political reform that would give you the flexibility. Now, I talk in the book about the need for a bicameral house, similar to the United States, and that one of those houses would be um, geographical, local representation. So instead of being the uh, member of Knesset from the Kulanu party, I'd be the right honorable representative from Jaffa. And um, now the people who most oppose this, by the way, are the Haredim, because they, they, they're a national constituency. And that type of regional representation would weaken them. Uh, but it would be very important. And that would give each of those, what you would call, say, a, can a canton or a, a federated state, um, a greater say, a direct say in, in the governance of the country. The reason we want you guys to use the mic is because we're recording this. It's okay. going to be uploaded as a live episode. And we want our audience, our listeners, to also be able to hear your questions. So yeah, thank you. So uh, I really enjoyed your comments. In introduce yourselves, oh. by the way. Yeah, please. Well, I, I'm from the US, and I moved to Tel Aviv uh, about five, six years ago. Your name? Marcel. Yeah. I work, uh, work for the US from here, tele, tele, telework, anyway. I really enjoyed your comments tonight. Um, I also really loved your book uh, on the 67 war, which was great. I also really like Niall Ferguson as a historian. I think his, his work yeah. is fantastic. I listen to his We used podcast. to teach together. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's, yeah. he seems amazing. But yeah. what he seems to talk about a lot in his books um, is the financial role, the role of financial markets in driving history, right. particularly like an interesting... He's an economist. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like about how financial markets push the South to lose a civil war versus the, the North. And how and, Germany won, the, won World War II. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I guess my question is, in your, in your view and based on based on his, historically and, and the current situation and also your new book, what role do you think the financial markets have to sort of push the events in a specific direction? We've already seen that happening in Israel with exchange rate changes and government debt changes. Ooh. I was just wondering about your, your thoughts about that. There's much in this book about that, and I don't even know where to begin. Let's start, just, I'll just randomly take one aspect of this question. Israel, uh, Israel when I moved here, you know, I remember 100 years ago I moved here, um, was a basically lower middle class country. Our, our biggest export was oranges, okay? And um, everybody was poor in the same way. And you know, it took two years to get a telephone. We had one TV station, black and white, for an hour every night. Iron size was on, the streets would empty out. Right? Maybe remembers iron size. Um, today, Israel, in terms of our per capita GDP, uh, we have passed Italy, we've passed Japan. Uh, we're closing in on Austria, and ultimately we're closing on Germany as well. And yet, and yet, we're well on paper. We're a wealthy country, wealthy country. We have the biggest social gap in the world between rich and poor of any country in the world outside the United States, Chile, and Mexico. And that gap is getting deeper all the time and wider. And so, you want to look at one of the problems be, that that's not the presenting problem here. This is it: the social gap. Who's out protesting? Who's not out protesting? That social gap is very, very deep and has all sorts of profound ramifications on the society and on our politics. And, um, and is Israel doing enough to close that gap? We're not. Just a, just, um, a, a seemingly minor point. Uh, the role that the IDF has played in closing the social gap. Well, IDF was always the, the melting pot. It brought the rich and the poor together. But that is ending. 
And now it is increasingly popular, particularly in the greater Dushan, to give your kids coding lessons in third grade. So someday they'll get into intelligence to 8200. The other day I'm driving in my car and I was shocked and appalled to hear a commercial on television, on, on the radio. And the commercial was two, did I tell you about this? The two, two women, like, I don't know why, they're always polaniot, okay? They're always two Jewish mothers. Doesn't matter, they're, they're like in their 40s, but they're talking in Yiddish. And one of them says to the other, says, my daughter just got accepted to crew, you know, missile boat commander's course, Choflin. And the other woman says, you think that's good? My daughter just got accepted to A200. And it's a commercial for coding classes for kids. But what is that saying? If you give your kids coding classes, they don't have to go out and actually fight and die. All right? They'll be safe. You also need to know and someone. when they go into A200, then they acquire the skills to come out and make ways and mobilize, and they're going to make billions, because that's what's giving us that great average GDP, okay, is the billionaires. It's the Gushdan where now the, the Bentley outlet of Hertzli is the most successful Bentley outlet in the world. Can you imagine that? I remember the days where there was one Jaguar in the entire state of Israel. We all knew who owned it. Uh, who owned it? Shmolchol um, <laughs> owned it. Uh, and, um, and who is actually guarding our borders, guys, tonight? Who is enabling us to sit in this wonderful Soho house tonight? People from the periphery. They're the people going to Golani. They're the people going to, 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 to Sanchanim and Givati. And what are they coming out of the army with? They know how to kill people. That's great. That's not going to get you a job in Mobileye. And so the army, which is also was a melting pot, and I talk about this in the book. I talk about how to rectify this. We have to provide additional education opportunities for people coming out of these combat units and make it worthwhile to go into those combat units. You don't have, none of these problems I'm listening now are insurmountable, not a single one of them. I want to stress that. But here, here, give you an example of how the economic factors are profoundly impacted Israeli society. So uh, theory is really snap your fingers, make it happen, 2048. And reality takes a lot longer. So if these things are doable, how do you make it a reality? Mm -hmm. So here's where my political experience came in handy, okay? I learned how, and I, I say this in a kosher way, how sausage is made. And politicians make decisions, not because they wake up in the morning and say, I got a great idea for a new law. They wake up in the morning because they've been woken up by a knock on their front door, and they open up the front door, and there are a 1,000 people outside saying, if you don't pass this law, we're not going to vote for you. And that gathering outside the door begins with understanding. It begins with awareness, okay? I mentioned the Bedouin issue, right? and I think the Bedouin issue ultimately can be an existential threat to this country. And, uh, and I, by the way, I only touched on it because the Bedouin have undergone twin processes of Palestinization and Islamicization, which puts them on a completely different trajectory toward us. Um, and, but no one's gonna demand that anybody in government do anything about this Unless there's awareness, unless Israelis, I don't know how many people were shocked by some of the, the, uh, the uh, statistics I gave you about the Bedouin, unless it's, unless it's internalized. We did not talk a long time about the Haredim, but the Haredim issue is, is absolutely essential for Israel's future and the relationship between this, the, our state and our Haredi citizens. 
but that now is moving to the forefront of Israeli politics. It's become awareness, and that the current situation is not sustainable. Um, so I'm, I, I see sources for optimism in this. I think the Israeli public is able, is capable of waking up um, and demanding action, and demanding action. It was amazing to me. In the last election, guys, um, no party put out a significant economic platform. And yet every poll showed that the major issue here, for the first time, because every poll always used to show that the first issue that Israelis care about is security, for the first time it was economy. It was the cost of living, it was the cost of housing. We have this, and believe me, in the next election, the next election, every party's gonna come out with a serious economic platform, and good. Although Israelis at the end, known for at the ballot, they, what? their handshake, and they vote for security eventually, and, and, mm. and identity. What their okay. father and, and mother voted for. I don't know. I think, um, I think if a party came out with a serious, I mean, I was in an economic party. Uh, we got yeah. 10 seats just on housing prices. It wasn't bad. We didn't bring down the housing prices. <laughs> no. That's another story, uh, alas. Okay, guys, this is the end of the episode. Unfortunately, I had a technical problem, so uh, I didn't record the last couple of questions, but. Uh, yeah, you got to hear most of it. It was an amazing event. Thank you, Soho House, for hosting us. Uh, it's a beautiful place in Jaffa. If you're in Tel Aviv, you have to check it out. Soho House. Also, thank you, Jay, from TLV Salon, for organizing this event. Guys, subscribe to the TLV International Salon mailing list. We'll put a link in the description. And finally, thank you, Michael Oren, for being a fascinating guest and coming to the show for the fifth time. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.